Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Richie Shoemaker, MD, is a recognised leader in patient care, research and education pioneer in the field of biotoxin-related illness. Over the past 20 years, Dr. Shoemaker has uncovered how genetically susceptible people can develop a multi-system, multi-symptom illness, a condition dubbed chronic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRS. Often patients diagnosed with conditions such as fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, and even Alzheimer's disease have in fact been later diagnosed with SIRS and their symptoms improve upon SIRS treatment. Through numerous peer-reviewed research papers, presentations at conferences, books, interviews and physician training, Dr. Shoemaker has worked tirelessly to raise the awareness of the potential adverse effects of biotoxins, particularly biotoxins from water-damaged buildings. Dr. Shoemaker, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Well, I am absolutely delighted to be able to take some of your time to talk about my favorite issues in medicine and we're going to talk about chronic inflammatory response syndrome, I bet. Yeah, certainly. So let's, yeah, just discuss that. So this uh, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, I think um, I think it was Andrew Heyman might have said it at one stage, if you know um, Lyme and if you know SIRS, then you know medicine because it seems to um, cover every ology I can think of from immunology to neurology, cardiology, rheumatology. I can't really think of a, a system that isn't affected, maybe the bones, but you could correct me wrong if I'm there, but... Um, I think it's a really good model, obviously, um, understanding physiology, but more importantly, um, what really strikes me is that this multi-system, multi-symptom illness. So let's um, maybe just wind back the clock, perhaps, and start back where it all began, so um, listeners can get an understanding and appreciation of how widespread this is. So 20 years ago, I suppose it's going to be probably the wrong term, but anniversary, um, back in 997... Now, you're a, um, or were a, a small town um, doctor in Pocomoke, which in my conversion looks like about something like around the northern um, rivers of New South Wales, a lot of um, river rivers and estuaries and so forth, similar sort of climate. And uh, an outbreak developed there. Can you um, just explain what happened there? And, and I want to touch upon the, almost that sort of um, serendipitous moment that probably, you know, change your career in when you gave that um, prescription of cholestyramine. Well, I, I am delighted to hear that you've read so much about my work and, and, and the experiences, but I was very happy to be, uh, uh, I thought, a well-trained primary care physician working out in a rural area uh, in starting in Pocomoke in 1980. Uh, the National Service Corps had agreed to put me here. I asked to be there, and the, the deal in the U.S. was that if they support your medical school, school education, you pay them back a year of service for a year of service. So it was it was a fair fair trade. Uh, I was delighted to be in a community where I could enjoy the wonders of our wetlands and the beauty of our natural resources on a daily basis. And uh, it was surprising. In 1996, we started hearing about some of the people that are fishermen, basically, they're called watermen in the area because they will catch fish and crabs and uh, oysters and uh, essentially live close to nature, harvesting nature's bounty and almost a hunting, hunting and gathering type society. But when they started talking about changes in the river, and changes in the fish, and changes in their own health, and no one knew why. Because of my interest in wetlands, my interest in, 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 in the wild, and the fact this is a small town, I, I do own one tie, Nathan, I don't think I've worn it in years, but that fit in well with this culture. But needless to say, when folks said, what's wrong with us? What can you do to help me? My memory is bad. I've had diarrhea. I've, I've had cough. I've got muscle aches. I just my, my memory is just really so bad, and I, I feel miserable. I've got numbness and and in tingling, and I'm just so tired. I've never missed a day of work in my life. And where did this syndrome come from? And the answer ended up being in the fish. This was not ciguatera that you have uh, further in the north and Cairn and all that. But this was an illness of an organism that we sometimes know about from red tides. It's called a dinoflagellate. 
It's about three billion years old, one of the first to evolve after blue-green algae uh, in the, the growth of life on this planet. And these little algae-like creatures are content to uh, live in watersheds of all kinds. Some are in salt water, some are in estuaries, some are in uh, <clears throat> areas that are freshwater. But the one that we found in our rivers had a funny name, Fisteria, named for a researcher named Dr. Feaster. But Fisteria was causing concern further south in North Carolina in areas of tobacco growth and uh, there where they have uh, tobacco and tomatoes growing on black plastic on the edge of the, of the river, there was an outbreak of a mold that nothing could kill. So as a result, instead of using the newer fungicides, the farmers used older fungicides. They, in turn, wiped out the mold, but they also contributed to an ecological imbalance that let not only Fisteria grow and bloom, but forced it to change from a benign amoeba phase that kind of crawled along the bottom of the river into a fast-moving motile toxin former. And the toxin former made people sick by virtue of a toxin. Now, the toxin had never been identified before, but specifically, as time went by, it was this introduction to a toxin made by a biological creature that changed my life. When I had two, three, five, ten, twenty, two hundred people coming to see me, and I could do very little for them, their tests were normal, they had this multi-system, multi-symptom illness, finally one had terrible diarrhea, and as you uh, said in your introduction, I said, well, I can't help the illness, I've been working at it for several months now, but here's some cholestyramine. It's an old-fashioned cholesterol-binding drug, lots of side effects of uh, gastrointestinal problems, including constipation, but primary care docs like us all know that if we give patients with secretory diarrhea, means they poop whether they've been eating or not, if we give them cholestyramine, they will be healed from that problem until the problem is identified and treated definitively. Well, sure enough, when I gave a few people cholestyramine, they got better, got better quickly. And I've never taken a drug like cholestyramine that's not absorbed and given it to somebody and done anything other than fix diarrhea. Only now I was fixing muscle aches. Now I was fixing memory. Now I was fixing cognitive problems and respiratory problems and muscle aching and numbness and tingling. What in the world is going on? As time went along, looking for help from experts, no one had any data, uh, and yet we found clear analogies to why our estuaries were being victimized by runoff from our black plastic plantations that grew tomatoes and then across the bay where they grow tobacco. Uh, the Chesapeake Bay is one of the world's biggest estuaries and when bad things happen to the water, towns like Washington, D.C. and Baltimore sent their news media and suddenly this ex explosion of 200 sick people was on local news every day for months and months and months, national news for a while. It finally took 10 years, but my ideas about environmental sources of the change in an organism were confirmed by a U.S. agency, the National Oceanographic and Aeronautics Administration, but it took 10 years, 2006. When I look at the illnesses, as I look back 20 years, I can see ongoing parallels and analogies we are seeing exactly the same environmental changes in fungal populations, in cyanobacteria, blue-green algae populations, even some of our bacteria that now are newly resistant to some of our antibiotics of last resort, vancomycin. Oh, my God, if I get sick with sepsis and I need something to save my life, let me have vancomycin, please. Only now we are seeing new resistance coming out of an environment that perpetuates the abnormalities of horizontal gene transfer. These little organisms, dinoflagellates and bacteria, protists, if you will, archaea, if you will, they're, they're able to share genes. And because they can share genes, what goes wrong with one kind goes wrong with another. So when we look at Fisteria as a model, 
this is not confined to the U.S. It's not confined to a small town in a rural area of Maryland. It's present in Brisbane. It's present in Sydney. It's present in Melbourne. There is no area where there is indoor plumbing and a roof that you can say that you don't need to know what CIRS actually is. I'm not blowing smoke. In the U.S., over 50% of our buildings are labeled by another U.S. agency, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, as being water damaged. And this problem of schools with water damage, they're unsafe for learning. Workplaces with water damage and microbial growth, they're unsafe for the workers. And homes, no. You don't want to buy an apartment. You don't want to stay in a fancy hotel in Brisbane like I did and get exposed to mold problems that nobody knew about. So it's not a small issue, Nathan. And if you're helping uh, your docs learn, I hope you also are helping uh, citizens of Australia rise up and say, what has happened to our world? So the cholesterol intrigued me how the mechanism of action, it basically binds up um, positive charge toxins in the gut and prevents the reabsorption. And that seems to be a key a key player in any of the, the SERS conditions. So um, maybe, it, maybe we can have just a slight adjustment of that. The particular biologically produced toxins all have a net negative charge. Negative charge, sorry. has a net positive charge and it turns out the charges are essentially the same in size so that a biotoxin or an ionophore or amphipath whatever words you want to use will be bound by cholestyramine uh, in the duodenum in the jejunum the first parts of the gut and then reabsorbed uh, and not reabsorbed like they normally would be in the ileum so that we essentially stop ongoing what's called enterohepatic or intestine to liver reabsorption yeah that's correct um great so yeah i think in like functional medicine we often think about the metabolism for want of a better term inside the body you know phase one phase two but it seems like the crux of the matter is once it's finally excreted that it um it returns so even a single exposure could continue for literally decades i imagine uh, okay. Yes, that's correct. Um, which leads me to your, probably the next point in your timeline was when you started looking at um, post-Lyme syndrome where the, the antibiotics perhaps have failed and or the patients still have symptoms and you employed this same theory of the cholestyramine with the toxin. Unfortunately, this time it wasn't the serendipitous discovery that you had hoped for you had almost an adverse reaction, but it was a, also a catalyst for further digging deeper into this um, pathophysiology of SERS. Can you elaborate on that? As time passed, it seemed uh, quicker now in retrospect than it may have actually been. But by 1997, uh, our group had published on treatment of, of hysteria with cholestyramine. Uh, in 1998, the definitive paper came out along, along that way. That led to invitations to look at other biotoxin illnesses, including blue-green algae and other dinoflagellate problems like ciguatera. And then 1998 came along water-damaged buildings. So things were moving pretty quickly. And in 1999, after three years near about of benefit in multi-system, multi-symptom illnesses, the symptoms were all the same. The visual contrast deficits were the same. The normal labs that your docs might get were always normal like they always were. That was all the same, these illnesses. What happened is that Sam Danta, a physician in Boston, Massachusetts in the U.S., published a paper, actually published his work that led to a patent on a toxin made by Borrelia. It's called the BB toxin. And I thought, well, look, if, if Lyme makes a toxin, I should be able to give the same cholestyramine to folks and watch the same immediate improvement, and, and, and life will be great. Only when I gave them cholestyramine, their symptoms not only were worse, they intensified to the point that most people were disabled for several days. This was completely different spin on the basic mechanism of binding a toxin, and what we found was that there were inflammatory problems created and created in what we call a storm. And these 
inflammation chemicals called cytokines were were all that all on that well not well known back then. TNF was one of those tumor necrosis factor alpha that was first discovered in in, in 1985. And by 1995, there were about 10,000 papers on this one compound. But we didn't know that in the 20 years since then, there will be hundreds of these cytokines and derivatives of cytokines, all a part of innate immune response that were turned on like crazy as cholestyramine disrupted the normal dissociation of these toxins from binding sites. So intensification, as I call it, was not the same problem that you get from taking antibiotics. This was caused by removal of additional circulating biotoxins by cholestyramine, a non-absorbable anion-binding resin. And the mechanism of action that made people feel so much worse was inflammation. And that was the, the, the insight, the holy cow eureka moment that has led to where we are now with genomics, looking at the fundamental mechanisms. And, and, and time started to run together real quickly. If cytokines were the problem with Lyme, wouldn't it be possible to block those cytokines? There are medications that did that, and let's try, and sure enough, it worked. That was the first use of Actos, which is pioglitazone. It's a drug that has some concerns about possible cancers now, those concerns were rebutted, but everybody's still scared of using that. But having said all that, the omega-3s, which are over-the-counter uh, fish oil derivatives of DHA and EPA, uh, will perform the same benefit if we pretreat our post-Lyme patient, uh, who's already been on, say, three or more weeks of antibiotics, uh, and due diligence has been given to ruling out Babesia or Bartonella, uh, things that sometimes get uh, a bit overemphasized. And there are specific tests that need to be done accurately. Those do not include a LISA test. But having said that, if you've had someone with antibiotics for Lyme and you think they're Lyme and you use the methods of, the, of CRS looking for a multi-system, multi-symptom illness with visual contrast deficits and you pre-treat them with the omega-3s, high doses, 2.4 grams of EPA and 1.8 grams of DHA for at least five days before beginning cholestyramine, the intensification reaction does not occur. So if we block pro-inflammatory cytokines, which we do, can we then proceed to deal with the additional inflammation that we see in our post-Lyme patients? These sources of inflammation are anti-inflammatory cytokines, complement of the split products of C3A and C4A are incredibly important. Probably the most important is transforming growth factor beta-1, but then we also will find coagulation abnormalities. It's, it's like throwing a, pedal, a pebble into a pond, and that being cholestyramine in a Lyme patient, and what we do is the ripples move outwards and watch the waves uh, go to one edge of the pond. There'll be a rebound. And now we have a wave upon wave that then rebounds and another wave upon wave upon wave. And we are disrupting this simultaneous, almost cacophonous, if I can use that word, response of innate immune uh, mechanisms that are designed to protect us but there in their attempts to protect us are overstated like crazy. So this wave upon wave upon wave, we can stop, silence, quiet the waters, much like you would by throwing oil on the sea. And what happens is that the inflammation calms down and we finally see that the post-Lyme patient truly is a CIRS patient in every aspect except for the initial infection. Great, thank you. Okay, um, so we'll just uh, move on to the symptoms, and we'll come back to the inflammation. So this multi-system, multi-symptom uh, illness stems potentially from this uh, ripple effect and inflammation. And what, as I said, strikes me is how widespread it is. And often the patient does have a a um, diagnosis of chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia. So could you just sort of des describe some of the the key systems and symptoms that patients um, uh, suffer from with SIRS? Through all the sources of SIRS, whether it's post-Lyme, whether it's water damage buildings, cyanobacteria, and you've got a lot of cyanobacteria 
especially around Melbourne and the Murray River. But there certainly as well are as a role for ciguatera in, 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 in your north. All of these organisms and scorpions and snake bites are part of the same thing. And well, you guys got some monsters over there. They all will have the same grouping of symptoms. The average number out of 37 that I use routinely because they're found in 30% or more of all, all cases begin with fatigue. And this fatigue will give a chronic non-restorative, non-restful sleep. So people wake up feeling tired. If they have a good day, they try to do a little bit extra, they'll be wiped out on day one and day two after the post-exertion malaise, RCDC calls it, delayed recovery from normal activity. Other people call it push crash is, I think, a better idea. But then cognitive issues and executive cognitive function, ability to have recent memory work properly and concentration being disrupted, disorientation and uh, trouble remembering things that just read and trouble being able to, to concentrate as, as, as well all go together. Joint problems that move from joint to joint from day to day without causing huge redness that stays. You stick a needle in these joints, you don't get out a whole lot of white blood cells or pus. You don't get a lot of, of, of bacteria growing out, if any, if ever. You also have respiratory problems. The damage can be called asthma, but it's usually not. It's usually not obstructive disease, which is what asthma is, it's restrictive disease. And in some of the worst cases, you'll have pulmonary fibrosis and interstitial lung disease because one of the players of inflammation called TGF-beta-1 will make the tissue between small airways and small blood vessels thickened and stiff and not let oxygen move easily. You'll find a variety of gastrointestinal problems from bile acid reflux and chronic pain that looks like stomach acid reflux that's not. You will find people will have diagnoses of uh, bacterial overgrowth in, in, the, in the small intestine. No, it's all just the effect of one of the regulatory hormones called melanocyte-stimulating hormone, or MSH, in its different effects in its absence on the gut. That includes some immune problems with gluten that maybe we'll have time to get to. The symptoms continue. Unusual seizures, unusual tremors, unusual numbness, unusual tingling. Peripheral neuropathy gets diagnosed, and then we get to the brain. Here are the onsets of atrophy and gray matter nuclear structures that are vitally important. Here's the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis that isn't. Here's a diagnosis of of Alzheimer's disease, and oh my, is this a hot item of our research right now. We've got a paper coming out next week that I think will be revolutionary in this field. But the real issues that we face is that everyone has multiple symptoms, or multiple body systems, but they don't stay the same. They vary from day to day to day. And as such, they are distinctly different from, say, degenerative arthritis or true depression or true Parkinson's disease where symptoms stay pretty much the same from day to day. Thank you. Yeah, when I first came across this, it uh, really struck me as um, often when I was in practice, I'd get caught up in the, the guard or the, the lungs or something, but this really sort of was this light bulb moment that perhaps there's this overarching element in some of these patients. And the other area I found intriguing was, it's probably um, led currently by Scott McMahon, how with the work with children and SIRS. Now, I understand they have a slightly different or less intense or, I suppose, a widespread presentation, but really important. I think I, I had these flashback moments like, oh, I had a patient like that five years ago. I wish I had known about this now. So could you just touch upon the presentation in children? Dr. Scott McMahon is one of the world's experts in, in pediatric SIRS. He has several papers that are in the publication pipeline that will be easier to read once they're published. But Scott had uh, trained at, at, at Duke like I had and had a similar questioning approach. He has been able to identify, uh, verifying some of the work earlier work our group had done and taking it much further, been able to verify that this is multi-system, multi-symptom illness in children with fewer numbers of symptoms means around 12 as opposed to 22 in adults. But children get sicker quicker than adults, and they also get better quicker. The problems we see in children uh, primarily will be abdominal pain and headache and fatigue, 
uh, and cough, and then interestingly, kind of a dropout in the ability to, to handle math functions. Uh, it used to be one of the ideas in pediatric fibromyalgia that acalcula was the first warning of fibromyalgia. Actually, it was the first warning of a misdiagnosis of SIRS by calling it fibromyalgia. But having said that, as Scott and others have treated now thousands of, of patients less than, than age 18, we know that they have the same kinds of inflammatory abnormalities of innate immune responses that adults do. They're just a little worse. They get better quicker. So age has no, no bearing on this illness and does it exist. Similarly, those that are older than 65, and right now that's me, oh my goodness, the same applies to me as well. When I look at the fellow who was 75 years old, who came because he had uh, dementia due to his Parkinson's disease. His family was distraught. What can we do? We're facing assisted living and the costs are huge and the care is never as good as what it would be possibly at home. But who can take care of demented people very well? The answer is you treated his dementia by recognizing the inflammatory basis of it, his Parkinson's went away, his brain returned, and Alzheimer's was defeated in the situation where expand the diagnosis, use the principles of all age groups of CIRS, geriatric, pediatric, middle-aged, uh, women and men, they all apply the same. Great, thank you. All right, now you've mentioned inflammation several times and perhaps uh, practitioners thinking, well, you know, I've tested for CIP or ESR, the, the well-known biomarkers, and, and they're fine, therefore my patient's not inflamed and probably rules out SIRS. So I want to start um, moving into all these newer biomarkers. But f And first of all, let's have a look at the, um, the HLA, the, the work you did um, probably 15 years ago, which really identified who's genetically susceptible to this. Can you describe the, um, the, the types of HLA and, and the frequency? Just in, in terms of background, when I looked at 10 people who were recreating in an area of the Pocomoke River where Fisteria was active the next day and the fish kills the day after, I'd never had an explanation why seven people got sick and three people didn't. It made no sense. Uh, was it uh, due to age? No. Drinking? No. Obesity? No. Cigarettes? No. No. Race, no. Gender, no. All these reasonable questions, no. And then when I looked at the immune response genes, uh, the histocompatibility locus A, we worry about them in transplanting. If you want to take my kidney and give it to you, Nathan, you're going to want to make sure it's not rejected if we don't have the same uh, immune makeup. The immune response genes are that makeup, and they're involved in recognizing antigens and stimulating the immune response to take antigen recognition to its expected end result of antibody formation. But in these patients, the ones who were ill all had a paucity of HLA types. The ones who were not well didn't have those, I think I said that wrong, the ones that were well had HLAs that were not the same as those that were sickened. And specifically, the problem of HLA was that there was defective antigen presentation. Our immune system was almost asleep at the switch. There's an antigen in us setting off inflammatory responses. It should be kicked out, those, those antigens, by an antibody, but the antibody formation process was never activated. So HLA is one of the most important mechanisms to say, why is Johnny sick and Susie is not? Great. So, yeah, as my understanding is, is this innate immune system, this attempt to hand over the, um, the, the, the pathogen to the acquired immune system, and it never quite works in a sense, and there's this heightened immune response, or, uh, which won't be picked up by conventional tests. So tell me some of the, the biomarkers that you've identified over the years uh, that are now well um, proven to correlate with SIRS. One of the most important is a neuroregulatory peptide. Wow, what a, what a mouthful. <laughs> but we know that chemicals and hormones made in the brain have protective effects, not just on 
brain chemistry, but also peripheral chemistry. One of the most important ones is melanocyte-stimulating hormone, or MSH. And one of the analogs of MSH, called melanotan, comes uh, out of production facilities in Australia. But MSH is the compound that has something to do with obesity. It also has a lot to do with skin pigment. And if you want to get a suntan quickly, take some MSH. Unfortunately, you watch your moles get dark as well. But MSH protects the mucous membranes, the blood, and the skin of the organism from inflammation. MSH interacts with other hormones. Uh, androgen hormones, for example, are under MSH regulation because of what MSH does with gonadotrophins, pituitary compounds. MSH interacts with ACTH. Uh, they're both called melanocortins. ACTH has a lot to do with adrenal functions. So if I hear someone say, I've got adrenal problems, and they're going to take steroids or cortisol, I, I, I just go nuts. How can you possibly ever do that without controlling for regulatory neuropeptide MSH that regulates ACTH that regulates cortisol? Because when you step in and use drugs for adrenal fatigue, you can suppress ACTH, you can suppress MSH, and bring on disaster. So that's an example of use MSH, which you can get, by the way, at a couple labs in Australia without any problems. Use MSH to help guide therapy. If it's low, don't barge in with hormonal therapy, including thyroid hormone uh, therapies, including androgen therapies, including uh, steroid therapies. There's another neuropeptide, a neuroregulatory peptide, called vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, or VIP. And we are using VIP in countless patients now with tremendous safety and tremendous benefit. Uh, we can't use MSH. It's not allowed in the U.S., and melanotan is not exactly the same as MSH. But specifically, VIP is allowed to be used in the U.S., and we can fix inflammation problems. We can fix difficulties with injury to the brain and watch brain substance regrow. Interestingly as well, our Alzheimer's patient, patient was a classic example of correcting that. We also can use VIP to fix the basic fundamental mechanisms of gene activation. We haven't talked much about that. We will maybe if we have time. But there is a tremendous amount of hope that peer-reviewed and very good published papers show us that the early work with MSH led to VIP, which has led a breakthrough to the fundamental mechanisms of these diseases. Incredible. And, yeah, that really, to me, illustrates how these um, pituitary hormones that's affected by the biotoxins, that's what really is the sort of the upstream of events which cause this widespread global dysfunction, whether it's gut and hormones and so forth. And as I said, yeah, often practitioners, understandably, chase down the, the end symptoms, but we need to be more mindful of these um, pituitary hormones. Now, the other one I wanted to discuss, you mentioned uh, earlier on, was the uh, 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 sorry, TGF beta one. Describe the the role that plays in the immune system and what goes awry in SIRS. If we look at TGF beta one, and I'm, I'm reminded of an argument I had with a pediatric rheumatologist about high TGF beta one in a condition that was like juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and the poor child had inflammation of the uvea was was going blind. And I asked a rheumatologist to measure TGF-beta-1. He goes, well, I, I've, I've never heard of such a compound. And I said, sir, I really don't think you should announce that to the world. There's only 85,000 <laughs> published papers. TGF-beta-1 is one of the substances that I looked so long and hard to find a lab to get. And finally, in 2008, we found a lab that would. Six months later, Quest and LabCorp both picked it up to take it in-house. And right now, this transforming or changing cell type can make some cells either in liver or lung thick and stiff when they shouldn't be. It'll create fibrosis where it shouldn't be. If there are tissue receptors uh, for TGF-beta-1 that are of the wrong kind, it will take, TGF-beta-1 will send regulatory T lymphocytes into cells where they should control inflammation and suppress autoimmunity. But under the influence of TGF-beta-1, these good guys, the Tregs as we call them in the jargon, are plasticized and turned into effector T cells 
that not only make more TGF-beta-1, but they also exacerbate and make much worse inflammation in tissue, and they set off autoimmunity. If you have someone with chronic ulcerative colitis, what is the TGF-beta-1? You will find that's regulating their ANCA. How about lupus? With anti-nuclear antibodies, TGF-beta-1 through genetic mechanisms is intimately tied to this. How about anti-gliadin antibodies or gluten intolerance? Look for TGF-beta-1. How about anti-cardiolipin antibodies? Look for TGF-beta-1. Because if we have high TGF-beta-1 and low tissue receptors, and the, the acronym ROR curiously stands for retinoic acid orphan receptors, but if ROR is low, TGF-beta-1 is going to hurt you, and that's one of the therapies we have to use. TGF-beta-1 has additional effects by turning on what are called nuclear transcription factors, and there's a whole host of those. And TGF-beta-1 here sets off disease mechanisms that make these illnesses incurable if you don't correct the genomic abnormalities set off by TGF-beta-1. It's fascinating to see peripheral inflammation leading to lack of regulation of central DNA regulation of transcription. And yet, because that's true, we look to see why is CIRS such a teacher? Why does CIRS tell us about atherosclerosis? It teaches us about brown fat physiology in our obese patients and our type 2 diabetes. Don't tell me you fixed the blood sugar and that's the only intervention for your type 2 diabetic. Didn't you fix the inflammation in leptin receptors as well? Didn't you reacclimate the body to brown fat physiology and non-shivering thermogenesis? When we're looking at regulation of energy transfer, we have to recognize the most important stimulus of energy dissipation is suppressed in obesity. Here we have people saying, well, you need to eat less and exercise more. And I say, you need to turn on the genes that regulate brown fat more is what you need to do. Forget this psychobabble that somebody told you that all you do is exercise more, get a shoulder problem, a knee problem, your hurt problem more, start taking pain pills, get renal problems, and all you get is all pain and no gain. Turn on brown fat, life's really good. Incredible. We've gone through it, all different systems. And now I want to go um, deep into the, the nasal microbiome because there, uh, something there that's occurred that's really um, had an effect on SIRS. Can you tell us about the Marcons? Oh, you, your docs at Newcastle University get gold stars. They really do. Uh, Dr. Uh, Harold Budd and, and, and Tim Roberts were way ahead of the world uh, back in the uh, late 90s. They were talking about multiply antibiotic-resistant coagulase negative staph and chronic fatigue and in facial pain. They were right on the button. As it turns out, as I got interested in their work, I found it was only in MSH-deficient patients that these what were called commensals, these are organisms that live on mucous membranes that don't invade, are allowed to thrive and make biofilm. In the biofilm status, these organisms differentiate and they start making compounds that they never made before. Specifically, we now know that coagulase-negative staphs aren't just in the deep nasal mucosa. They're there, but they also can set up residence as slow-growing colonizers in dental cavitations. The biological dentists a long time ago that told us that failed root canals were a bad idea were right. I'm not sure that they knew why they were right. We now know that the marcons that grow in dental cavitations have differentiated, and whether it's horizontal gene transfer, Nathan, we talked about this earlier, or not, these organisms are making a toxin. I'm not kidding. They're making a toxin that's a polycyclic ether that has structural similarity to one of the toxins that is present in the Great Barrier Reef called palytoxin, P-A-L-Y-T-O-X-I-N. So thanks to the work of Roberts and Butt, we have now been able to show that this organism that I've known for a long time, if you don't eradicate it, people don't get better. And if you don't use cholestyramine or a binder first, you won't eradicate it. My concern is that there are some physicians who mistakenly, and this is a gigantic error 
that we see primarily in some of the folks that use antifungal preparations. If you hear someone diagnosing candida or systemic candidiasis and they use antifungals, they're not knowing that what they're doing is creating a multiply antibiotic resistance addition on these Marcons. It's bad enough to have a toxin former that creates more gray matter nuclear atrophy than any other compound that there is, but now we're seeing vancomycin resistance and genomycin resistance solely due, and your doctors need to listen and stop using antifungals in the nose forever. This is a disaster, and it's being caused by well-meaning physicians who just need to know the immediate results of wrong-headed action are really making people suffer more. Hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, so now I want to transition to the water-damaged buildings. We've covered sort of the external environment, the ecology there, but I think probably the, the largest component of SIRS comes from the indoor environment. So could you give us a bit of an estimate of how many homes would be um, suffering from water damage um, or water damage? It's an interesting calculation. We know that the HLA genes that are susceptible or create susceptibility and relative risk is the epidemiologic term is, is about 25% of the population. Uh, I don't have statistics for Australia, but so far there's no differences in age groups uh, or in, in, in uh, ethnicity. So if you uh, have darker skin or lighter skin or come from Africa or come from Iceland, it doesn't make too much difference. Underneath our skin, we're all God's children as far as HLA goes. But when we look at 25% of patients susceptible and 50% of the homes are water damaged in the U.S., if we have 320 million people, and I think we might, 50% uh, of the homes is 160 homes, 160 million thereabouts, and 25% of those folks are about 40 million. And you start saying, well, those, well that, that's a huge number. It couldn't possibly be true. Well, we have 15 million with fibromyalgia. We have 7 million with uh, chronic fatigue. We have 8 million with traumatic brain injury that are, that are sickened. And I say you're over 30 million already, and you haven't even talked about the Lyme population, the Ciguatera population. And in just about every one of these illnesses, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, traumatic brain injury, you will find the same CIRS mechanism present. And then if you start looking for water-damaged buildings underlying their illnesses, bingo, you'll find it. It's incredibly common. So the numbers really do add up. It's frightening to think that cognitive issues are being accepted as the norm. Um, we can all wonder what's happening to our country politically. All I can say is something's happening to our populace with their ability to handle science and math as they've lost cognitive issues and cognitive skills due to these biotoxin illnesses. Thank you. So in Australia, I think there's similar estimates, and I believe um, Dr. Sandeep Gupta has done some work there. But again, I think about 25% of the population has um, the HLA for, for mould, and um, estimates suggest around about 50% of the homes um, suffer from, from water damage. So obviously many, many patients to be on um, to be aware about. So as a, perhaps now as a, you know, a patient, when would you be suspicious of your home being water damaged? What are some of the cardinal signs or, or, or things you can do? The first indication is water intrusion. Do you have moisture on the living room ceiling after the, the bathtub or the shower is overflowed? Do you have an area of, of warping of your floor in an area around the front door that leaks in a rain? Do you have visible mold growing on drywall? Do you have microbial growth that looks like soot uh, in areas that it might have extra moisture? If you do, then it's easy enough to say, are there microbes involved? And you can take samples. Fortunately, we can look with samplings uh, in, in tests of, of uh, mold DNA uh, in one of the absolute best labs uh, in the world is, is, is actually uh, in Queensland, I believe. Uh, that's uh, Mold Labs. Dr. David Lark uh, runs that lab. He has advanced work with actinomycetes, another organism that nobody talks about inside water damaged buildings. 
He's made it so easy to diagnose bacterial overgrowth with endotoxin formation. Uh, and uh, the work with, with that Vince Neal has been doing with a variety of physicians is dramatically expanding our understanding of what water damage buildings do by showing microbial uh, volatile organic compounds, or MVOCs, not only are found inside homes, they're found inside people. And more importantly, when we treat the MVOC exposure, Vince has been able to show healing of illnesses that didn't respond to anything else. On a somewhat scary point of view, there are reservoirs of MVOCs that dissolve in fat tissue, with the brain being the biggest one, that can persist for 6 to 12 months following removal from a known MVOC-contaminated environment. So as you've noticed in this discussion we've had today, uh, Australian docs and, and, and researchers, in, in a way, are leading a large part of the world. So I would hope that you would extend invitations to your listeners to reach out to resources that, that I know are world-class. I have no financial interest in, 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 in David Lark's lab or Vince Neal's uh, protocols, but I do have a vested interest in seeing their research get the credit that it's due. Uh, still a tip of the hat to what Newcastle did. I wish they'd followed up a bit uh, more, but they have their own interests just like I have my own. But we are looking at water damaged buildings that create a unique habitat. Imagine any place outdoors that stays 62 to 75 degrees 24-7 and doesn't have a bunch of rain inside, doesn't have a bunch of wind inside, doesn't have a cold front one day and a warm front or extra humidity one day or a hurricane the next, or cyclones, I guess is what you call them <laughs> over there. But the, the real issue is that this is a unique habitat. Fortunately, the docs from Oz can show us a lot about what we've been able to show in the U.S., uh, they're adding to our work, and we're working with them, uh, kind of uh, togetherness. And that, that's, that's our own trans-Pacific partnership is what it is. So thank you, Vince Neal. Thank you, David Lark. Thank you, Tim Roberts. Thank you. Yes, uh, actually, a, a reference for both physicians and um, patients alike. Again, I don't have any um, vested interest in this. I think I've emailed them once just to say hello. But um, toxicmouldsupportaustralia.org do have uh, a good list of um, testing labs. Labs are available, uh, tests that are available in Australia for practitioners, but also um, methods of testing your, your home for mould in Australia as well. So um, you can check that out on Google. Now, one area we've pretty much gone through different organs and systems I want to go up now to the brain and um, look at your work you did uh, a couple of years ago on vol volumetrics where the MRI studies, which um, I was the first alerted to it by Dr. Dale Bredesen with his work in Alzheimer's measuring you know, the um, size of different part regions of the brain. You've applied this neuroquant for SIRS and it's, as I get it, it's almost a, a diagnostic marker to see if the SIRS is related to mold or Lyme and so forth. So can you describe what you've done there? When I heard that there was a way to image the brain, to take it from two half footballs, so to speak, uh, maybe that's American football, but I think <laughs> the Australian football is a similar shape, but to take two funny halves that are shaped so bizarrely, the math on trying to figure out volumes is very complicated, but there is a software program called NeuroQuant that helps make the brain's into two basketballs, basically spheres, that make calculations of volumes far more straightforward. And with this accurate mechanism of inflating a brain to demonstrate volumes, we can look at volumes that we expect to find of white matter and gray matter in patients who are well, we'll call them controls, and compare those to patients that are sickened. And surprisingly, we published in, 19, in 2014 that there are differences we see in mold patients. We published in 2015, there are more differences between uh, Lyme patients and controls separate from what we see with mold. And now we're looking at multinuclear atrophy and with our VIP treatment protocols, we're fixing all three of these. But the paper in 2016 showed that we successfully corrected brain injury. And this is, this is the remarkable thing that that independent researchers like Dr. Bredesen, I think, are taking into account. There really is a prodrome and a natural history 
of what goes on with progressive brain atrophy that is ongoing before someone becomes demented. And the idea is that we can use the mechanisms of determining abnormalities in volume and we can combine those data with proteomics or the lab results, combine those data with what we do with our CRS patients, but we also can combine that with genomics or transcriptomics to look at differential gene activation. And where we are now, Nathan, is the genomics of brain injury and the genomics of brain repair. This is, this is a world that I've dreamed of since 2005. It's here. It's every day. Our next paper will be coming out, I think, probably in six months, maybe eight months. But is right now, the preliminary results are just absolutely stunning. We finally have reached, with genomics, the mechanism to show why are people tired, why do people hurt, why do people feel bad, why do people have bad memories, and the why has turned into how. How do we treat these illnesses? And then the next question is, when will others catch on? Great. So it sort of, to me, seems like the almost your, your final frontier of testing with this um, moving into genomics and almost to the areas which I'm still getting my head around, but I think Jeff Bland calls it the, the DNA dark matter. Uh, so what does it all mean for the patient? Is it more of a, a screening tool potentially in the future to see if they're going to be susceptible and perhaps what what um, symptoms they may manifest? What what I um, not struggle to, to sort of reconcile, but you've, you've done really, really well with all the biomarkers, with the MSH and so forth, and it just is this next layer. So what does this next layer add for physicians and or patients? When we think about DNA, we think about the master regulator of the human organism, and in fact, any organism that has it. What we now know is that our learning of DNA was added to with learning with the Human Genome Project about RNA. And there are RNAs that will take a message from DNA to the cytoplasm. There are the RNAs from the messengers will interact with ribosomes. We make proteins. We never knew how many ribosomal genes there were in our DNA that regulate ribosomal function. And this abnormality, and while we don't have time today to go more into that, maybe we can go over this another day. The abnormality is a ribosomal protein production of protein elongation or fundamental mechanisms of disruption of what DNA leads to. So the question comes, if DNA is regulating so many things in the body and reacting to signals coming from the environment, are there things that regulate DNA? Yes, I've already mentioned nuclear transcription factors that will differentially activate some genes and not others. Remember, when we look at DNA, we're looking at gene activation, not just a SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphism. Those are static or structural things that no one really knows if they're active or not. And if they're not active, quite frankly, who cares <laughs> if you have an MTHFR? It's just not being expressed. But the real issue is that now that we know there are nuclear transcription factors, we've also learned that there are factors ribosomal-related, mitochondria-related, mRNA-related, microRNA-related that all feed back into what's called long non-coding RNA that regulate nuclear transcription factors, ribosomal genes, mitochondrial genes, mRNA, microRNA. And are we looking at an additional layer of, of regulation? If we look at long non-coding RNA, and it's not dark matter, this is, this is real, it's got plenty of light on it. Hmm. But if we look at, at, mess, at long non-coding RNAs, there's a lot more to be learned for sure. And then that's one layer of regulation we look at microRNA, another layer of regulation, we look at all these other ones, our fundamental understanding now about DNA is that it is an effector. It responds, it does what it's told to. And the mechanisms of disease incidence begin with lack of regulation of regulation of DNA transcription. It's a whole new view about what is disease. And if we can take, as our recent paper showed, 
we can take people that have all these diffuse abnormalities of abnormalities of regulation or regulation and correct them with a protocol and a drug as ours do. And we have not changed DNA a bit, but disease goes away. Is DNA causing disease? No, it is the effector of disease. Inflammation leads to changes in DNA through changes in nuclear transcription factors. Changes in nuclear transcription factors come from long non-coding RNAs. Where does this chain end? We know the effectors of DNA control not just ribosomes and everything responding from individual environmental exposures, but it also controls our mitochondrial function. How many docs, Nathan, have you talked to that thought that mitochondrial genes had something to do with chronic fatigue? Well, they were right, only they didn't have the gene location right. It's mitochondrial genes that are in our nuclear DNA. They're there too, and that's where the regulation of mitochondrial function takes place. Yes, you need to correct oxygen delivery to mitochondria, but when you do that, you also have got to correct nuclear-encoded mitochondrial genes. So just when you think you knew something about mitochondria, and here's discussion about stress responses and all this, somebody comes along like me that says, wait a minute, it is a mitochondrial problem in our own DNA that's the source of the trouble, not the mitochondria. Poor guy's just doing what it's told. <laughs> well, I look forward to reading um, more of your papers, and yes, I'd certainly love to get back to discuss that. Okay, so we'll wrap it up now. So for someone that's new to SIRS, where, what can they go? Where can they read that can give them an introduction? And, and what um, education and conferences do, do you offer? You have two very good questions. Let me take the first one. The easiest way to get an introduction to SIRS is to go onto the Surviving Mold website. Uh, they're, quite frankly is a lot on the internet that I know is, is nonsense and malarkey to be polite, but on the Surviving Mold website, everything we do and write is peer-reviewed and published. It is academically oriented. If the jargon is too rough, read it again. There's a glossary uh, that will help you out. But on the homepage, there are two links. One is the medical consensus of the Surviving Mold Physicians. It was published in 2015 as the group consensus. In 2016, to learn more about buildings, uh, the indoor environmental professionals consensus is there. On the website, you will see, I think our group has 35 or 40 papers published. Those are all free downloads in, in what we call resources or publications. It will be reasonable to look at what the protocol is, the certified physicians, uh, and you do have several certified physicians from Australia. Uh, some are in, in, in the process of getting certified, but Dr. Gupta has now kind of passed all of his tests, and he will be teaching and certifying in the very near future. And I'm absolutely delighted. What a tremendous resource you have in Australia with Sandeep Gupta. Uh, I, I, again, I have no financial relationship. He's just a real good guy, uh, and he's smart as can be. So we have finally gotten to the point of being able to share information Published peer-reviewed materials, consensus statements. There are countless PowerPoints, countless learned conversations, uh, and now the work of our extended network. We have docs in Australia, South Africa, uh, the UK, throughout the US, and then in Canada as well. This is moving very, very quickly. Um, if you're going to guess, we're not going to let you do that as part of our group. If you're just going to speculate and, and treat that way, you're not going to be part of our group either. But if you use hard data, and rigorous use of logic, and rigorous use of high-quality medicine, then you're one of our doctors. Great. Yes, uh, we've got um, Dr. Sandeep Gupta coming to our uh, 2017 Congress in the Hunter Valley, and also um, your colleague Keith um, Burnson, if I can always can pronounce his name correctly. So I'm really looking forward to their contribution. But yes, I certainly like to do a, a follow-up podcast uh, in the future on the genomics. But um, hopefully uh, the listeners have got a sense of what a outstanding clinician you've been and I think a, an incredible scientist to to question things and test and measure and, and continue to push the boundaries. So, uh, yeah, I really thank you for your time, and I really hope for I can I hope I can speak to you in the, in the near future. Well, I would I would love that. It's it's hard to communicate across nine thousand miles, but you have done an excellent job, and a tip of the hat to you for your skill and 
and in kind of leading this conversation. I tend to talk too much because I get excited. This is <laughs> this is my passion, you know. So you you've done real well controlling me, but I I hope the message is clear that there is a problem that we face that's recognizable. Because it's recognizable, it's identifiable. And because it's identifiable, the good news is it's now treatable. Thank you. Well, I'll uh, let you go there and we'll um, hopefully chat soon. Very good. Have a pleasant rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thank you.